All right, so we're going we're gonna to speak just for a few minutes out of the gospel reading out of John chapter 2 that we read today. And I'm going to give us a little bit of framework around that passage as we get into this story here. Now, weddings in those days, they typically lasted about a week. So it wasn't just an afternoon event. It was a celebration that lasted seven days. So it was a big to-do in the community. And everybody... Per- for the most part, knew each other. So it was just a big community celebration, like a festival, uh, so to speak. Now, it was, it's also important to note that it was an embarrassment to run out of wine. So if you didn't have enough wine for your wedding party, that was an embarrassment. And even more than that, you could actually be fined. You could be fined in that culture for not having enough wine. Wine was just a celebratory uh, drink that they had there, and it just represented the celebration of the wedding. And it's, it's interesting to note as well, Jesus had just called Nathaniel, uh, his six of his 12 disciples, a few days earlier. So he was about half capacity. He was going to end up with 12, and he had six at this point. And as I was thinking about this 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 week, I, I started to think about my own wedding. My wife and I are going to be celebrating 22, 22 years uh, next week. And I remember our wedding. So we got married in a church in Tacoma. And the wedding started at 1, and it, it lasted till about 2. And I, I want to say that we weren't allowed to, I don't remember, we, we, we rented the bingo hall next door which was, was funny because we got married in a church and then we went to the smoky bingo hall next door to have our reception. Um, I, I don't remember why we did that. Was, was it because we weren't allowed to dance in our church? Oh yeah, our church wouldn't allow dancing. And so we went to the bingo hall and everybody, pastors included, went next door to the uh, bingo hall. So it's since changed, but that's the way, you know, that's the way it was sometimes. But what I remember a lot of things about my wedding reception. Number one, of course, my bride. Um, but I remember, too, getting to the wedding reception, and the food hadn't begun to be cooked yet. So we had some really good friends of Naomi's out in the back cooking a bunch of meat, and it was good. And the, these were Islander Hawaiian people, so you knew it was going to be good. But they, they didn't operate on a normal time. They operated on island time. <laughs> Anyway, and I know we have some Hawaiians in here right now, so I'm not going to make eye contact. But anyway, I remember there was like an hour and a half period from when the reception started to when the food was actually served. And part of me was kind of stressed out about that because they had a lot of people there. The other part didn't really matter so much because I was, I was the groom, so I couldn't get in any trouble. But I, I, I just remember that that taking place um, and that's what I thought about as, we, uh, as I got into this scripture here. Now, um, Jesus uh, was in attendance at this wedding with his disciples, and he most likely knew everybody there. So everybody knew Jesus as the son of a carpenter. He was a carpenter at that time. They knew him. And I'm sure, <coughs> excuse me, the mood of the wedding had begun to shift as people began to realize that their celebratory drink was running out. And maybe they, they didn't plan enough. Maybe they had thirsty guests. I don't know what it was. And then I want to take a note here to say as well, a lot of people use this passage of scripture to like justify drinking. 
Uh, and, you know, I, here's what I tell them. If you want to take this passage of Scripture and justify drinking and, and use Jesus as your example for drinking, use Jesus as your example for everything else as well. So let me just throw that out there. But Mary approaches Jesus, and what takes place in this dialogue, Mary, she, there isn't many dialogues with her in Scripture, but every time there is, it, it changes history in so many ways. Let me explain. Jesus approaches Mary, and they have this very quick dialogue, which really changes the course of Jesus' life. Mary tells Jesus very simply, they have no wine. That's what she tells Jesus. When maybe, he, I mean, he's young, he's probably 30 years old at the time, he's working as a carpenter. Why would, would Mary tell this to Jesus? What did Mary understand about this situation? Wouldn't it seem more efficient for Mary to go tell one of the, the hosts of the party or tell somebody else? Jesus had only begun at this time his teaching ministry. He'd just gone to the temple to teach, and, and he had not yet displayed his miracle-working power, his deity-working power. I believe that, Jesus, that Mary discerned an opportunity. Mary understood there was an opportunity in this situation for Jesus to display who he truly was, to activate what his father had created for him. I believe that we as a church, we as individuals, we as a married couple, us as, as, as citizens, we have an opportunity to step into something new, not just with the flipping of our calendar, but with the hope and the promise of a new season. Tomorrow starts a new year. And it's a new opportunity for us. Over the next few weeks, and, and, and I, I believe this very strongly, that we're on the doorstep of a new season as a church. And, and I believe that there have been prayers prayed over this church for the last 14 years that we're going to come into a season where we're going to begin to see that those prayers are answered. And while I'm believing that for living word, I'm also believing it for you. I know that there's some of you in here have been praying prayers for years, for decades even. And you've been crying out to God and saying, God, I, 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 you know, it, it could be any kind of thing. It could be a health issue. It could be a financial thing. It could be anything. God hears your prayers. And I'm believing that this is going to be a year where God is going to reveal his promise to you. And I believe that you and I are going to have an opportunity to step in and see the things that God has promised. And maybe you feel disappointed. Maybe you feel discouraged. Maybe you've been praying for certain things and they haven't come to pass. God is going to keep his promise. Is that bold? Yes, it's bold. But it's also biblical. It's also biblical. God kept his promise to Noah to Abraham, to Hannah, to Esther, to Mordecai. God kept his promise to David, and he will keep his promise to you, and he will keep his promise to this church. Now back to the story. Jesus answered, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, for Jesus to call his mother woman was an expression, a polite expression of social distance in that culture. Jesus was now, right here in this moment, was stepping into a transition from being the son of man or the son of a woman to now the son 
of God. Jesus was now on a path that would point people to the kingdom of God and to the Father in heaven. Every miracle he performed from this point forward would point to his death, burial, and resurrection, which ultimately reconciles man back to God. Jesus was stepping out of his role of the son of Mary and stepping into his role as the son of God. It's interesting that this conversation takes place at a wedding. You see, God illustrates his relationship with his church as the bride being us and the bridegroom being him. Church, it, like I said, we're the bride, he's the bridegroom, a sacred and sacred and holy institution and relationship. And that's why I believe that we need to protect the sanctity of marriage. We need to protect that it is between one man and one woman. Anything else is a blasphemy and an insult to God. We are the display of that relationship to the world. Jesus was about to display his deity for the first time, thus setting into motion the most effective ministry in human history. In response, Mary says this, do whatever he tells you. Okay, that's the best advice ever. Do what Jesus tells you. If the church could figure out to do what Jesus tells me, oh, how effective would we be? As we enter a new, se- new year, a new season, a new opportunity, let's set our hearts to do what Jesus tells us. John 2, 6 through 8 says this. I'm just going to repeat from the reading. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus had in his heart what he was going to do. Jesus did miracles for two primary reasons, or at least two reasons. Number one, Jesus did a mir- miracles to show God's love and mercy to the person receiving the miracle. And then he also did them to reveal who he truly was to mankind. Okay, When Jesus healed the man who was blind... He gave that person his sight. But also, there was a revealing that Jesus was the one who would give spiritual sight to the blind. John 10, 25 through 30 says this, and this is Jesus later on again talking to his disciples. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one who will, will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says these works, these miracles testify that Jesus is God. He and the Father are one. That's a very big statement to make, unless you are, in fact, God. The miracle and the rest prove his deity, yet some people still refuse to see it. And we still see that happening today. 
At this wedding, he chooses carefully those he reveals his miracle to. And I think that this was wise. These two verses are about the response of the servants to what Jesus was asking them to do. Okay, they showed obedience to Jesus in a few ways. Number one is they filled the washing jars to the brim. They didn't just fill them halfway. They filled them all the way up. And this, these, these, these uh, stone jars were most likely for washing, for purification. So when they came to the wedding, they could go through all the, the cleansing that their religion required them to in order to enter into the holy ceremony. Isn't it interesting that he uses those to perform this miracle in? They took the water... And they took it to the master of the banquet. Now, when did it become wine? There's a lot of debate about when did it become wine. Was it, did it become wine in the jar? Is it on the transportation from the, the, the jar to the master? Was it when it touched the master's lips? It's kind of unclear. But I think what is important is the obedience of the servants to the voice and instructions of Jesus. They had been invited to facilitate the miracle. They were participants in what Jesus wanted to do that day. They weren't priests or teachers of the law or scholars or people that were were high up in, in the religious. They were just servants. And God used them to help facilitate his first miracle. God is inviting us into his plan and to his purpose in this new season of our church and our lives. God is calling us all to be participants in what he wants to do. That's a great invitation. I'm almost done. John uh, 2, 9 through 11, I'm just going to repeat it just for uh, uh, memory's sake. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk Freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The master of the banquet proclaims the miracle without even knowing it's a miracle. All he knows is that this is the best wine, and now it's being served at the end of the event. Now, there is a lot of prophetic content in this announcement that the, 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 the master did. I would encourage you to go home and read through this story again and consider what's taking place because there's too much to go through it. But the bridegroom we see through this miracle, the bridegroom is be- benefiting from this miracle by the preservation of his dignity and his wallet, apparently. And it displays that Jesus is ushering in a new wine and a new covenant to his people. Isn't that interesting? We're about to partake in Holy Communion here, and we're going to remember that holy, that new wine, that new covenant. Psalms 38, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Jesus allowed his disciples and the servants to know that this was a miracle, that this was supernatural. He allowed those closest to him in relation and status to see his glory first. Jesus set the standard for his ministry here. He broke cultural norms. Okay, He served wine, the best wine last. He used stone washing jars. He had the servants of the feast deliver it. 
He also created opportunity for his father's glory to be displayed to those who needed to see it at that moment. Okay, This was a miracle that displayed who he was to his, his six disciples at the time and to the servants, but also it benefited the person, the bridegroom and the master of the wedding. And he performed the miracle in such a way as to point everyone who heard about it right back to his father and to his plan of reconciliation. Every morning where it's not pouring down rain, I drive, uh, I drive to the office here, and as you come over the hill, you look at the mountain and you see this beautiful sunrise. And in fact, when you pull into the office, if you pull in around 7.15, you just see the beautiful, bright sunrise coming up over the mountain. And it's a reminder every time I pull up that God keeps his promises. God is, is, never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus manifested the glory of his Father that day in at least two ways that still ring true. He showed his sovereign rule over material creation, and he showed his understanding and care for the minor details of our lives. Here's what we've got to understand. Jesus is greater than our sickness. Jesus is greater than our anxiety. Jesus is greater than our doubt. Jesus is greater than our circumstances. Jesus is greater than our challenges. Jesus is greater than our problems. Jesus is greater than all the things that weigh us down and hold us down. Jesus is greater than those. And Jesus cares about every detail of our life. Now, I, I do this every week, and it's always sincere, but I always thank the grandmas and the moms and dads who get their kids ready. And I do that because Jesus sees the effort it takes to get your kids, and Jesus cares about those things. Jesus cares about the effort you took to find the right shoes and the right pants and all the stuff, and the kid who doesn't want to get dressed and put you know, underwear on his head and run around instead of getting out to the van. And all those different things that it takes and you could insert that into to any area of our life. You know, Jesus cares about the little details of our life. And this is how I close. As we enter this new season, this new year, this new opportunity, let us look with expectation for the glory of God to be revealed and his promises kept. <laughs>